Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Mass casualty events can occur anywhere and at any time around the world. And when they do, and they involve British citizens, there is often an incredible team of people deployed to support families involved and to ensure that those affected by such events are supported and given closure and an ability to grieve for loved ones that they've lost, often in horrific and unexpected circumstances. Retired Detective Sergeant Miles Manning was a family liaison coordinator, part of this incredible team of professionals who led on identifying the deceased and bringing closure to the families involved in these events. These are extraordinary people doing extraordinary work for others. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Can we talk about the um, a couple of these big incidents that you've been part of? And the first one I wanted to cover off on was the tsunami in Thailand in 2004 uh, in the crisis centre. Local police liaison FLO coordination for DNA identification and you are the point of contact for non-police agencies. Tell us about that event for some of our listeners that aren't police related or aren't aware of it and your role in what was a horrific natural disaster. Yeah. So, I, um, I've i moved off um, the murder 
the murder uh, homicide command by that time. Um, and I'd gone to witness protection, which is a covert role. And so uh, I wasn't allowed to sort of FLO, um, uh, uh, sort of I wasn't allowed to, I wasn't allowed, uh, front facing wasn't, uh, wasn't really something that I should be doing because I was in this co covert role. But because I'd done, I was like a cadre of, uh, I wasn't the first FLO, but I was amongst the first, you know, I was maybe a year or two after the program started, I was, I was there. And they, they, they'd set up this family liaison advisory team and I'd done a few jobs, uh, particularly one big job in, um, in Ealing. Um, and so I worked with the family liaison advisory team. Um, but then I disappeared off to the tsunami and I was never going to be an FLO again, as far as I was concerned, because I was in, the, in, in witness protection. But um, along comes the tsunami uh, and I remember getting a telephone call at home uh, on Boxing Day um, by a guy called Andy Grant, I think, who was in the family liaison advisory team that I knew, knew quite well. And he said, Miles, we've got this job on. Um, we need your, we need, we need coordinators down here. Can you come out? And the coordinator role hadn't really started properly. Um, and this, this tsunami is the first time that, um, that uh, a coordinator and whether the, the, the police, the Met Police in particular, had really responded, or the British policing had responded in such a way to a mass casualty a, a disaster abroad, because it was one of the, the biggest in, uh, ever. You know, 250,000 people lost their lives, 100,000 people in, uh, lost their lives in seconds in, on the, on, in, in uh, Bandaracha in, in, in Indonesia when the wave hits there. Next thing I know, we could hear loads of screaming and shouting outside, and we could see it was majority, a lot of women running outside. They're running towards the train tracks and turning left. And then you could hear the water coming. And um, I could just hear the water rushing, rushing towards us, and I could see it. Next thing I know, it'd come up even further, and it was actually coming in through the trains, because the trains don't have doors that close. The water started to come in, then the train actually got moved off the tracks. Our carriage got moved off the tracks, and um, water started pouring in. Uh, and I think it's about 149 Brits were, were, were lost, uh, were, were killed uh, on, that, on that day. But at the first day when we when I arrived at the, the crisis centre, and this crisis centre, the casualty bureau as it's called um, then, uh, had a little pod for family liaison because obviously we were we were very new uh, in that in that respect. Uh, but that pod grew and grew and grew, and we didn't have any software, so we were getting people were calling up saying um, we think that there's uh, that my son, daughter, mother, brother, whatever. Uh, we think was in Thailand, was in Sri Lanka, was in the Maldives or whatever, uh, and we can't hear from them. So it was just a, a matter of trying to, to, to get all this information through, and it came through the casualty bureau, ended up on us, get it into some kind of format. So we put it on a spreadsheet, and in the, well, even now, all right, only one person can sort of edit the spreadsheet, which when the numbers concerned was, was huge. Uh, so that was chaotic. Um, but we were spending all our, 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 our sort of time because obviously the time difference. So we were getting in and we were doing um, we were doing 12 hour days, but they were obviously extended up to about 14, 15 hour days generally. And my role when I was on, because I got the, early, the day shift, so I would come in, we would get the faxes off that had been sent over to us by the disaster victim identification team that had gone out, the DVI team that had gone, had gone out. Uh, they would fax through pictures of, of bodies mangled 
Uh, we would try and then sort of um, because whenever someone called in and said to said that there was a you know that the, the nearest and dearest was missing, uh, we would try and get a photograph. So we would then be trying to match the photographs up with pictures that the nearest that had been sent. You know, so that was our first thing, and we always got the nice photograph, all right, and then from the nearest and dearest, and we never got a nice photograph from the the forensic management team over in uh, uh, over in um, in the Southeast Asia, obviously. Uh, so that was just really, really difficult when we were we were trying to do that sort of thing. So then we were, I was talking to the holiday industry um, because they had reps out there, uh, and for two or three days they were they were on their own because no one got to them. You know, in Sri Lanka, in 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 Thailand, where these holiday reps were, no one got to them. You know, so they were sort of, and they, they, you had this unique situation where, by because of the way the, the the hotel was situated on the bay, all right, you would have the hotel A was totally destroyed and hundreds killed in it, and 20 feet to its right was hotel B, and it, it just got minor damage or no damage at all, you know, and so you had people uh, who were on holiday still sort of going, well, you know, so what are we going to do? And, you know, they, they, they responded and the people were going, you know, they set up their own casualty areas, they set up their own reception areas. Um, they, they, were, they were trying to deal with the bodies as well. And obviously the bodies was a huge problem because they couldn't keep them um they couldn't keep them um, uh, cold, or, or they so they they put them first of all in the in the temples, uh, and um, and the monks were were getting ice from the bars, and they were putting them over 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 you know religiously excuse the term, but were were, were trying to keep the the bodies cool, um, but obviously they could they couldn't in the end, and then someone made the decision to to bury them in 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 pits as well, and there was a. This one thing I'll never forget this this Austrian um, travel rep, and she got hold of a camera. She didn't have her own camera. It was one of a victim's camera, uh, and she saw all this going. She saw all her clients effectively going into this this pit. So she was taking photographs. <laughs> she was like nineteen, you know. She if she was that an age. And she had the she had the wherewithal to take these photographs to go. Oh yes, and as they were putting them in the body, she was zooming in on their faces, so she knew where her clients were. You know, she took that duty of care, that that support thing, and so she knew. Uh, and so we were, so we we cottoned onto this, and we'd obviously try and get to speak to as many travel reps as, as we possibly possibly could. They come into uh, into Seuss, by the way, uh, later on. So we were trying to get that that identification sorted out. We were. Bodies were going off all over the place, um, and it was very, very chaotic at first. Certainly, from my perspective, when I was in where I was in in Hendon, and, and that's when I also got introduced to politics as well. In that, who's going to pay for the repatriation of the bodies? How is this going to be, do, be done? And I remember because FLOs, because of the uniqueness of the role, family liaison officers, and then in turn family liaison coordinators, are often in the role in the room with the senior senior investigating officer uh, and they're often in fact they're always asked their opinion so it's very rare when you have rare role where you have a superintendent or above asking a detective constable well what do you think you know so it's one of the few roles you know what do you think the man you're talking on behalf of the families and in this case we were talking on behalf of the, the hundreds of families that we had on on the, on the list there and uh, so you know I, I was in the room when commander, I'm forgetting his name now, uh, I'm a, 
since I left, since I retired, my memories of names is just terrible. But I, I remember him having a stand-up row with someone from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office about they're saying, right, well, go in, get, tell all those reps that you're talking to to go and look for holiday documentation, so travel insurance documentation, uh, so that we can get them repatriated that way. I remember this commander saying, that's not going to happen. You are going to bring them back. And they went, well, I don't think we've got a responsibility to bring them back. And there was a standard round. It's really inappropriate. But to be fair to them, there was another person that came in that was part of the conversation that was sitting in the back and then just leaned forward and said, okay, we'll look at it. And then that that changed that in that that literally an hour later the whole the whole political sort of you know had changed the decision making had changed in that we're going to bring these back we're going to bring these people uh, bring these people back and then there was this amazing sort of logistics operation coordinated by the military and the nhs and the uh, red cross to get get people back it was absolutely incredible to be part of but that was the first that's where you just want somebody just to put a c-130 hercules in the sky just to go and bring loved ones home which is what he wanted and what what he got (laughs) you know he, he wanted that and he wanted that because we were telling him that that this is a, every sort of family member is saying, well, what happens now? And we couldn't tell them what happens now. Yeah. When are you going to bring my loved one back? And uh, you know, the, and the process did take quite a long time. Um, have you heard of um, disaster victim identification? Um, the, the, the the protocols around DVI. It's actually, do you know what? In in one of our first episodes of the podcast in series one, we were very, very fortunate enough to sit down with a chap called Sergeant Matt Calverley, who's now out of policing, who was part of the the disaster victim identification team during the Tunisia attacks in 2015. And he spoke about the trauma of witnessing and identifying and being part of that mortuary team and seeing the horrific trauma that victims suffer to the hands of very high-powered assault rifles, and it was something that will stay with him forever. And I think equally, along with family liaison officers, those disaster victim identification officers, who all of them put their hands up to do that job, no one seems to be selected, there is an expression of interest. What impressed me the most was that I think he he reflected on about 5,000 people putting their hands up to come forward for selection for that role. And just incredible... Human human beings wanting to take part. So, but tell us from your perspective as an FLO and an, as an FLO coordinator, yeah, what those individuals do. So, DVI, Disaster Victim Identification, they it's part of the UN protocols. Um, came about the Dutch and the Belgians, um, sort of after a plane crash. Um, they got involved in, I think it was in Romania, and it stems from there. Uh, and um, the, it, the protocols are sort of say that. If you have a a, a mass casualty event abroad, and in abroad it is three people, mass casualty event, and one of those is suspected to be a um, foreign national, the foreign national is not allowed to leave the country until they've been formally identified. All right, until it's absolutely been formally identified through, uh, you know, dental records, through DNA, through familial sort of um, identification, those sort sort of issues there. All right. Now, at the beginning, DVI wasn't in place. It was it was a free for all because they sent them all over to Bangkok or, or whatever, and there was there was hundreds of DVI officers sitting there waiting from all over the world, uh, and then they got access to these pits where these people were, um, and and they didn't really have the facilities to um, to deal with them uh, to deal with them. So they were the bodies were being sent off left, right, right, and centre. 
and different sort of countries apply different sort of um, identification techniques. So one country uh, would, would do dentals. So they would take the, the bottom jaw off, which is contrary now. Now that's you can't do that. You can't do that. And um, uh, DVI protocol said so. But they they were then using that jaw to make identifications, and then they're going, well, no, that that's they're not from our country. So they ended up back in the UK, and all of a sudden we've got a body that's got no jaw or got no hand because another country was using fingerprints and were taking the hands and, and that sort of stuff. So we were we had body parts missing. We had you know uh, that that sort of thing when they. Then when the body eventually ended up where it, where it should be, and this is only, to be fair, this is only a matter of four or five days where it's a bit chaotic, and it's always chaotic for the first, you know, for that opening period. And I've I've learned that as well. It's always quite chaotic. No, there's never, you know, all the plans that have gone in place. Everyone says that, don't you? They all go out the window when there's actual a crisis is going on because you, how do you write a plan up for one of the biggest disasters like that? But then very quickly they got themselves organised over in in um, in particularly in Thailand, and then it slowed right down. So we stopped having bodies coming back until they were actually identified. So we didn't have the one that had been to three different countries before they ended up in back in, back in Fulham. We didn't end the Fulham morgue there. But we didn't have that because the DVI protocols were then... Were, were, you, were you ever, I say, successful? You know, you, you talked earlier on, you know, you've got people phoning up and sending you images of, of, of loved ones that are missing. Were you ever able to do comparisons of the photo imagery that you were given by family and compare it to the imagery that you were sent from Thailand of people that had been involved in such a horrific natural disaster? Or was that, is that, was that just near on impossible? Well, mate, I tell you, that you, do you remember I said to you earlier there, there was um, something that affected me, that I, not affected me, that I remember in particularly, you know, with the punch through the chest, and I said in the tsunami, and I remember... I was talking to this guy in Scotland about his son that was missing. And uh, we used to get these, obviously, faxes that would come through. And there was a faxed photograph that was pinned to the wall. And it was a leg that was in a tree. And obviously, they'd taken the leg out of the tree and they'd taken a photograph. It was a severed leg. And they'd taken a photograph of the, um, of the tattoo. And it's below the knee tattoo. Just below the knee to, to the ankle. Very ornate tattoo. Remember, this is two thousand and four before it was, you know, before it was really trendy to have these sort of tattoos. And this guy from Scotland was sent sent me the um, sent me the, the email. He said, "Oh, I've got the photograph." I said, "So, can you send me a photograph, please?" And he sent me the photograph. And I'm talking to him, and um, it's remember the days the, the in the computers where the email, the photograph used to come down the screen, you know, really, really slowly. So uh, I, I yeah. talked to this, and I have this photograph, yeah. and it's just emerging, emerging. I mean, I've got this guy's head, and he's got a vest top, and he's got a beer in his hand, uh, and then as he goes down, go down, go down, and there it is. There's that tattoo that matches the one that I've got on the wall, uh, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh my god!" Oh wow! So I'm sitting there. So obviously, but, but, never but, tell people. Like, but that's um, that's that's not. Yeah, as I say, that's not news you break over the phone. No, that's no. like rule 101. So we said, okay, right, thank you very much. I took the information there and straight away. So, um, uh, what, you know, one of the other things about um, the tsunami was it created a network of coordinators for, around the country. So there was, um, uh, you know, we were able to pick up the phone to, to, to uh, I think it was Strathclyde, and say, we've got this, probably, 
um, because you're never dead until you're formally identified. That's another thing as well. All right. That's why there's a delay until you're formally identified, until it's, you've got that DNA, you've got that, that dental or you've got that physical identification by someone who a familial identification. You're never dead. All right. Uh, even though it's probable, you know, this guy, you know, he, he's definitely dead because his leg's missing and, and, you know, we've got bits of his leg. But until we've got that formal identification, he, he, then they're not dead. And, and FLOs have to manage that as well. So we had to get an FLO to go around and explain to, to, to the father that it's highly likely that his son had been killed. Uh, and that we've identified him from photographs of the of the of the tattoo. So that would never be done over the phone. And I know some countries do it over the phone. And um, and the, the FCO used to do it as well when they were in uh, when they were. But they stopped doing it. Uh, um, stopped doing it after when FLO started getting involved as well. It's not something you can do. You can't deliver a death message over, over the phone because you don't know what's going to happen when that person when you put the phone down. And you've got a responsibility, you've got due care to make sure that. Uh, they don't run in the street and throw themselves in front of a bus or something like that. How do you reflect on that incident in terms of how we managed it and coordinated it, being it was such a large-scale operation involving multiple different countries yeah. with hundreds of thousands of victims and, and a number of UK expats involved in it? Well, what's, your what's your key reflection or takeaway from um, it? I think, well, first of all, in that incident with the, the tattoo, I have problems with people who've got leg tattoo. Whenever I see a leg tattoo now, I always go, oh, it always sends shivers down my spine. And my daughter's now gone and got a very small one, unfortunately, uh, fortunately, but it still sends shivers down my, my my spine. And that's probably the only thing that in my entire career that really makes me go, oh, like that. But I think, I think DVI, FLO, <coughs> And remember, these are all secondary duties. These—they're not—they're not my—they weren't ever my primary duty. <clears throat> really evolved with the the mass casualty um, events. Really, the the tsunami because previously FLOing was all about murder murder victims. Was all about it's an immersive role. It's an investigator's role. So uh, and the and you know the things that we were taught. Uh, I remember on my FLOs course, if you know the victim. Know how they lived, know how they died was was the mantra. So you were you your whole point of being in of developing that relationship with the family was to get as much information about the victim as possible. Uh, and you know, a lot of the times, the victim knows who knew the, the, the perpetrator. And so it's our our job as an FLO to try and work out associations, trying to work out even maybe if some family members have, have been have been involved. Um, so that was the sort of start of it for, for FLOing was that, was that it was all about investigating. Uh, and, and this, for, for me, an FLO, um, isn't there for the family. An FLO is for the senior investigating officer, right? It's a part, it's, we are an investigative tool, uh, and we are there to support the SIO and what he's doing. And if we have to support a family, um, through the most traumatic time of their of their uh, their life, that is that is beneficial to the investigation. That is beneficial to the SIO. All right, so we can put all our efforts into into supporting uh, supporting the family because it progresses the investigation. Um, it, it makes sure that there's clear lines of communication um, between between the investigation and, and the family. Um, it. it it, it, it makes sure that there's two-way communications, you know. Um, so that, to me, is what an FLO is about. But then we started doing it for mass casualty events. 
where we didn't have to do any investigations. You know, that, you know, that we knew how they killed. We knew what they, what they killed. But there's still an inquiry. People forget that there's still going to be some kind of. Um, there's going to be generally a coroner's inquiry. Mass casualty event overseas gets a, a coroner's uh, court case. So the SIO has got a responsibility to find out how that individual died. You know, and so not just are they were they were here and they were here in Phuket or wherever, whatever, and they and they died. We don't know that we don't know how they died. They they want to find out exactly how that individual died, and that's why they do all their identification. That's why they, the the coroner gets involved. They want to say, oh, they died because they got hit. They they would wash. They were hit by a tree or or whatever. That that whatever. They they are looking to get as much information as possible and get it back to the family, because I know from from experience. The family need to know exactly what's going on and they need to be told that sensitively uh, and they need to be told it, but they need to be told that, you know, you, you, you don't hold back when, when people um, die. I'll tell you, for instance, um, in, in Aminas, uh, one of the, one of the victims was strapped to the front of a, 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 a that's Algeria, a pipeline attack. Um, uh, one of the victims was strapped, strapped to um, one of the, uh, the terrorist jeeps. Uh, and he ended up being killed by um, by uh, uh, by Algerian forces, but it took him a little while. Unfortunately, he didn't die instantly. Uh, and in conversation with the family by um, the, F the FCO, the question was asked: Did he die quickly? Well, intentionally, the person said, "Oh yeah, he, he died quickly." Yeah, but the reality was different, and and. They were, that information was going to come out in a coroner's court because the coroner is going to sit back and go, right, he was hit on by one bullet, but that didn't kill him. It was the fifth bullet that killed him, you know, and because coroners can work, they can, they can do that, pathologists can, can work that. So the family thought he died quickly, but he hadn't died quickly. All right? And that, because there was that well-intentioned, you know, I don't want them to suffer, but if they'd got an FLO to do that, an FLO would have gone in and said, I'm really sorry, you know, and would have been delivered that message compassionately and provided the support. But instead, that family straight went into anger mode because they were told that he died quickly. All right. And they'd set that that's that's the frame of mind they were in. And so there is that family that got a massive issue with the FCO because they were well-intentioned, was, they were told that, you know, that, that. And, and I'm not going to criticise the person because they thought they were doing the right, the right thing. But in reality is, is they, they created, uh, they hamstrung that, that family for, for many years, many year after. And that's part of the thing with, with um, mass casualty events. All right. It, we are so good at it. The UK nature is so so good at it. We stand up. We 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 send these friend. We send DVI teams over. We've now we start with the FLOs and and uh, whilst other countries have got FLOs, um, they're not to the same sort of um, uh, uh, sort of the intensity of the UK FLOs. They don't do what what we do. They haven't got that immersive role. They haven't got that sort of long term commitment, and they haven't got the training, the experience that that, that um, a lot of police officers have got within within the UK and so that made it ideal for um, for you know the role to, 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 to evolve particularly after these mass casualty events where we were it was coordinated out of London but we were running FLOs I was I was a, a so a, an FL, FLC an FLC coordinate family as a coordinator becomes a sort of 
line manager for the family liaison officers. Uh, and the whole point of me was to to reduce um, the to reduce all the peripherals, all the noise, all the sounds around the FLO, so the FLOs can con can concentrate on the families, can concentrate on what they're doing. So if I'm, it's my job to find out exactly as a coordinator how that individual died. Any sort of questions that come back from the FLO, they come back through me, and I, I'm supposed to find out all, all, all that. Any sort of all the media sort of side of things. That's what the, the family liaison coordinator sort of manages and deals with. All right, so that that's my role because we then reduce the impact on the FLOs, and the FLOs can then just deal solidly with the family, the family themselves, and they don't have to worry about you know all the peripheral stuff that that that, that comes when someone dies, dies abroad. So yeah, we really learned from that um, because after that they set up a, a, a cadre of DVI FLOs, so a load they had separate training. Um, and to, to respond, and that was all about identification. So they got taught how to take um, to take a DNA swab. They, do, you know, they they got taught uh, how to fill out the the UN protocol um, Interpol forms as well, um, which are quite complex in themselves. And basically, what they've got these forms, they've got these forms that the pathologist fills out, and they've got these forms that the FLO fills out. And what they do is that they put the two uh, in front of a uh, of a panel, a, a DVI panel. And the DVI panel looks at the pathologist report, looks at the, the family liaison report, marries them two up and says, yes, I'm happy that that individual is John Smith and that body can now be released. That's that's basically what you're aiming for in, in, in the DVI protocols. Uh, and so FLOs now become key because without them, you don't get that body released. Without their, right, we've got to fill out this form and it's really complicated, and it's long, it's, you know, it's, it's 20, 30 pages. Without them, you don't get that uh, that sort of, um, you don't get the body in front of the panel. You don't get that sort of uh, um, uh, comparison between the two sort of sets of paperwork. And you don't get that body back, which is what the families want. They need that family back as uh, that they need that family member back as quickly uh, uh, as possible. So they they learned from, from that sort of role, and I think the police are excellent at learning from mistakes, and we and we make a lot of them. You know, I'm not going to sit there and say we we don't, but I do think that uh, generally we do. We're pretty good at learning from from, from mistakes because of um, because of all the briefing we do, because of all the feedback and we we do uh, uh, as well. And so as it it, it moved forward, um, yeah. It, the response got better and better and better, but I tell you where it was, Paul. Um, it never changed. Was um, the sort of recording of information? It was I, I, in the tsunami. I, we recorded all the information on a um, spreadsheet in um, in SO15 in Counterterrorism Command when we were in the in Aminas was the first sort of uh, big attack that I was I was family liaison coordinator in. We put all the information on the spreadsheet as well, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I suppose that's where we. One thing, technology, we didn't move forward because no one had, a, we didn't have a budget to pay for that sort, that sort of thing. But yeah, that was the most frustrating, only frustrating side of it. But yeah, the the, the tsunami was the catalyst for, uh, and we're really good at, it, was for um, what happened later on. Um, so and they stand up now. Even when the deaths have just involved uh, one UK national um, in a mass casualty event, the response is is, is usually really 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 good in that in, in that respect. So yeah, I'm really proud of the, work, the stuff that we did there. So we we talk about mass casualty events, and one of the greatest challenges that the UK and the world has faced since 9/11 
is is the increase in Islamic terrorism across the world, which has resulted sadly in the in significant loss of life in a number of terrorist-related incidents, both here and abroad. One of the most uh, recent ones, which has hit and struck the UK very much at its heart, is the 2015 Seuss attacks, where 38 people were tragically murdered. 30 of those were British citizens. A beach holiday shouldn't end like this. Tourists were killed and injured today when at least one gunman opened fire in the Tunisian resort of Sousse. The beach attack is happening. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. So obviously there is an immediate response by UK authorities to assist and support the investigation, identification and repatriation of those, those individuals back to their loved ones, back into the UK. It was an event that you were heavily involved in. Are you able to talk us through that particular incident, your involvement and the challenges that you would have faced in quite yeah. difficult circumstances? So um, I... I got promoted in 2008, was on the borough. 2010, I went up to the counter-terrorism command to work in uh, prison intelligence. Um, during my time uh, as part of that DVI FLO response, I'd come across a guy called Pete Sparks, uh, who's an inspector, <coughs> very well known in, in, in FLO world, even though he was never an FLO himself, but he was a, a coordinator for, for um, the counter-terrorism command. Um, and I turn up... Uh, uh, um, so 15 and I bump into Pete and say oh I'm up here now and he puts me on the list and I become a, a family liaison coordinator so Inaminus comes along and the Kenyan um, Westgate Mall attack comes along and I coordinate both of those uh, and I was really frustrated in that we had issues where it would have been beneficial if there was an FLO in that area it would have, you know, it, we would have been able to got more information back because the forensic management team were there, but they have got a different sort of outlook. They've got a different sort of agenda. They've got a different sort of role to what an FLO needs. So we needed FLOs. And, and I was constantly moaning to Pete. I said, when this happened, we have to have FLOs out there. And he was fully on board with that. And he pushed and he pushed and he pushed. And I remember I, I was, I was, it was a Friday afternoon when the attack took place. Uh, and I was on platform form of Hemel Hempstead uh, train station and I had a training session that day and I, you know, I've I, I been to train and I thought I'd nip off home, no one's going to know it. So I'd gone home early right? and a telephone comes through and I'm on platform four and I look at it and I go, God, if I answer this, I, you know, this just, oh, I'm, I'm on Hemel Hempstead, I'm, I've skunked off for a couple of hours. So I answer the phone and it's Pete. We've had this, mate. We've had this. Oh, okay. Will you run it? Will you be the FLC for it? I went, yeah, of course. So I then get back on the train. <laughs> I tell him, I'll be an hour. I'll be an hour. I've got something to do. And he went, yeah, yeah, no worries. So I get back on the train, go back in, end up in the yard. All right, start setting up the coordination centre. I say to Pete, Pete, we need people out there. This is a terror, this is a terror attack on holiday makers. There are going to be lots of type people that need FLOs that, that you know, won't need FMT. And FM forensic management team have got more than enough to do. And he went, yeah, yeah, you're right. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm in front of um, Terry Nicholson. She's one of the superintendents there. And she looks at me and says, Miles, I've heard you moaning about this. All right, now's, now's the time to, you know, we'll send you out. So I went. 
And I said, right, I need a, need a team of FLOs. I'll tell you who I want. And he went, no, you're not telling me who you want. We, we just just go off, get your bags packed, and then meet you at the at the um, at the at the airport. So I had four FLOs, and what happened was is that they had one person ringing start at the top of the spreadsheet, and one person at the bottom of the spreadsheet. So I had the ABCs, and then I had the the you know the the WYs and all that lot as well. You know, in, the, in their surnames, the one and the first ones that had answered the phone got the job. And so the first time I met them was in Terminal 2 uh, at, um, at Heathrow before we flew out to Tunis as part of the forensic management team. That had never happened where a team of FLOs are going out as well. So that had never happened before. So I was there with these four FLOs talking about this, going, well, this is my experience, what we've done in, in Amina, this is what we did in, in Hang. And I was talking to the forensic management team who are, again, outstanding, I think, I can't believe that we've got, there can't be many um, sort of teams in the world that are as good as the FMTs that, that we, we train up in, the, in this country or put as much um, dedication into it. Um, so uh, we were part of the FMT, we got into Tunis uh, and we were there sort of Saturday night. We weren't allowed to leave our hotel because obviously the permissions hadn't come through, but we were allowed to leave the next morning. So straight away, I was sent down to Seuss by uh, the SIO, um, 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 uh, Mark Gower, uh, an outstanding senior investigating officer, outstanding, uh, and he um, he said, "Right, uh, you're on your own down there, mate, because they've cleared the scene." I went, "Okay, all right. All the bodies are up here in Tunis, which is about two hours uh, two hours drive down." So I took three of my FLOs because one stayed in in the, uh, in the embassy to sort of coordinate and send all the messages back. Uh, he'd managed to bring himself a Met Police laptop, and he was the only one, so he ended up doing that. So he was in that role there, Sid Ahmed, amazing guy. So he he was in there, uh, and then I took three down there. So I had two um, two female officers, uh, Lena and Julia, and uh, Chad, uh, a male officer, going down um, going down to to Seuss. I say that for a reason. Uh, come out So we were going down. It was about two hour, two hours drive, and as we were going down, about three quarters of the um, uh, the resort of Seuss was coming north to the airfield, uh, to the airport, which is um, uh, halfway between Seuss and, and Tunis. And, they, and the, 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 um, the travel agencies were just emptying the resort as quickly as, uh, as possible. So we got down to uh, got down to Seuss, and I was told that uh, the rapid deployment team from the, firm, from the SCO, from the Foreign Commonwealth Office, were in this hotel, um, Moven Pick, and that we should go and uh, introduce ourselves to them. And I sort of went, oh yeah, okay. So my own was just go and say hello, and then I'd crack on uh, and deal with it. But I met these two guys, uh, Martin and Paul, both the team leaders for the um, for the rapid deployment team, and we had a briefing uh, in one of the rooms. There's 19 of us in one of this this, uh, this boiling hot room in a basement uh, in one of the hotels that they'd taken over. Uh, and pretty soon I realised that I had to be part of this team, and we had to be part of this team. And I sat down with Martin, who'd never worked, he's experienced FCO, but he'd never worked with FLOs before. And I said, well, this is what we do. We will look after the, not only the seriously injured uh, families, but you know, but the death uh, uh, as well. And he went, brilliant. Every, you just handle them now. So our day would start about half five in the morning, uh, when we would meet up again in this windowless room. And we would try and work out who was coming over if people were coming over from uh, from the uh, from the UK. There'd been a horrendous incident before we got there, where a mother 
uh, who'd lost her son, her father, and her brother, had got on a, managed to get herself on a plane um, full of um, holiday rep staff who had been sent to the resort to, to assist. And they were all excited. You know, and you would be, because again, they're 19, 20 years old. So they're all in the plane, chatting away. Oh, they're all their adrenaline is coursing. Unaware that at the back of the plane was this poor lady who'd lost three members of, of her, her family. Anyway, it's a lack of training. Don't get me started on training the, tra uh, the travel industry. That's a, I mean, but it's a la lack of training and a lack of awareness on, on, on their behalf. But then, so we then arrived and then we, we took over actually managing the fam families. So we would do the briefing at half past five. We would find out if any families were coming out. Even if there were no families coming out, we would always send an FLO up to the airport just in case. And they would go up there with a couple of um, couple of holiday reps and, uh, and um, some uh, one or two FCO staff. So they would do that. They would then, um, the, the Tunisians wanted the um, primary indicator to be um, a visual identification if they could, all right, which is the least favorable option for any FLO uh, in any way whatsoever. So they, they sort of won, we're down there. I send one of my officers up there. Lena goes up, goes up. She meets a family in the, um, oh no, in fact, yeah, she meets a family in the airport car park. Um, she says to, the, to, to this family member, we've, we've got to do the identification. Um, you can either sort of, you know, you can opt out of this because we can arrange it through dental. Um, but if you do it, um, it'll make it a lot quicker. And so her husband, because it was the father, uh, you know, th this lady uh, had lost her father. Her husband said, well, can I do it? And we went, yeah, yeah, of course you can do it. You were the son-in-law. So she came with us um, down to Seuss. He went up to Tunis up there. He walked in to, with with Lena. We got to um, we got into this brick building that was part of the um, part of the um, sort of hospital. Um, and um, Le Lena takes him into the office. They, they, she's met there by this Tunisian official. Uh, they said sit in the office, and they had to sit there and wait wait for a period of time. I think it's about an hour, an hour and a half. They had to wait for a minister to arrive. Minister then turns up and says, I'm really sorry, you know, this is, you know, I'm really sorry this has happened to you, um, and apologizes on behalf of Tunisia. I have no problem with Tunisians, by the way. I think they're amazing. Some of the stuff that they did, and they're really helpful, but the infrastructure was really poor. Um, so um, they, they, um, they sort of uh, did that bit. Then they were taken into, an, an, into a room with, with Lena again. And there was a photo. There was a, uh, these Polaroid camera photographs on the on this table of all the victims, and the family member, the brother, the, the son-in-law in this time, was asked to pick out pick out the the um, the picture of, of his his father-in-law, which he did. At that time as well, another bloke came in and tried to swab him for DNA. Um, and even though he wasn't familiar linked, all right, they were, he, he, they'd been told that they were to get DNA from a family member, and that's what they were going to do. But they didn't do that. Uh, you know, so, so Lena was saying, no, 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 he's not a family member. Uh, so she was having a full-on battle, and in the end she went, okay, well, just have take your DNA. So he took the DNA, and then a little while later, um, they were taken into another room, and uh, Lena said, are we going to go into the, is the body in there? Went, yes. Can I go in there? And this is another thing that FLOs do. Can I go in there 
tell, uh, assess the situation, come out and tell the family member exactly the state of the body so they're not caught short. They're not, they know what it's like. And they said, no, you can't go in. Now, Lena being Lena went for it. <laughs> uh, and so she was full on, you've got to let me in. This is why I'm going to do it. This is why I'm going to do it. And in the end, they went, they dug their heels in. And so that family member then walked into the room. He walked into the room where there were other bodies. All right. He had to walk past other bodies. Uh, and her, his father-in-law was there. And no attempt, he was still in his, in his swimming costumes, you know. No attempt had been made whatsoever in the uk where if they do do those those visual identification they don't do them very often uh if they do if the family member is going to see a body in in the in the morgue which we do all the time they're all right they are not um they are prepared they're in they're in they're in a white gown their efforts are made care is taken of that that body and it wasn't in 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 tunis so lena comes back to me I then, uh, it tells me what's going on, I then go back to, to my command through Pete Sparks, who then escalates it up to the to, to command. Command then come, are getting pressure from the government, because in Tunis, obviously the, the foreign minister's been really upset about this, all right? and there is a, 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 a big hoo-ha about this, in, to such an extent that they were going to send Lena home. And I, I dug my. By this time, you, you know, we talked about how your body becomes affected in crisis. Well, I, these team members were my team members, <laughs> and to be fair to Pete as well, they were his team members as well. And these were these were my team, and they were not being moved because she had done everything right. She had tried to make it as easy as possible for 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 that family, but it hadn't happened that 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 way through no fault of her own, and so she should have been given afforded that that opportunity. But, and very wisely, all right, SO15 management all right, and senior investigating officers generally get it right, all right, uh, and they are, you know, it was, it was a privilege to be part of, the, of the, that, that team because generally the SIOs and the senior management there are approachable and get it right. This is where Cressida Dick comes from, you know, she's one of the finest police officers we've, we've ever had. You know, Richard Wilson, these are incredible um, sort of uh, uh, leaders. And it came back where where they they went to war for, for us as well, because it could have ended. The FLO experience could have ended then. Uh, and so, but it didn't. We were really, really lucky. Families were being brought in. Uh, there's no such, uh, I'm probably cynical, FLO cynical, but there's no such thing as a, as a, as a happy sort of cohesive family. All right? Especially when someone dies, in terrible circumstances like this, it causes fractions between families. So we were getting families, four or five, that were coming over, all right, and two or three of them were were having problems with, with um, the other two or three. So the FLO has got to manage that. And that can actually be resolved if the FLO is transparent and tells them everything that's going on. All right, that that is really beneficial to the family and actually brings them closer together because those disputes that they thought would that you know was due to poor communication, poor poor sort of information to them. So the FLO does that work and, and gets them uh, in, in a better place than they were when 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 they arrived. But they've got to manage an angry family. All right, which they do brilliantly. Again, remember these are these are DCs. You're generally DCs, uh, and they do that fantastically. 
uh, uh, so we were doing that on a regular, regular basis. We were coping with a huge amount of media intrusion. Um, there were cameras everywhere. Uh, I remember one occasion we were having a briefing at 11 o'clock at night. We'd been on since half five that morning. And we're having this briefing in, um, because the internet was so poor, we were having this briefing in the reception of the hotel. Massive reception, huge re reception. And there's about 15 of us dragging around a computer. And they were trying to take photographs of our computer, um, but we managed to, to block that. And then we sat down after the briefing had finished, and we were going to carry on working. But we had drinks, and they were soft drinks. I swear to God, they were soft drinks. I don't drink, so they you know. Uh, but they were soft drinks. And they were taking photographs of us saying, oh, look at this. This is the team relaxing in the hotel. We weren't relaxing. You know, I experienced that. And I remember this This was taken. And Martin uh, got up, who was the the FCO um, sort of uh, leader, team leader, him and, and Paul, um, and went over to this press photographer. And I thought, oh, God, is I'm going to kick off. So I went over with him. Uh, and he said, do you know what we're doing? You're taking photographs. You're giving me that perception that we are... We are, you know, we're here having a drink. And he went into one, and this bloke looked at him, and I went, listen, mate, seriously, you're going to do more harm than good. You know what we're doing. And this, and you, if you want to, you can photograph us at one o'clock in the morning when we're going back in. And to be fair to him, he looked at us and went, yeah, all right. And he deleted the photograph in, in, in front of us. You know, so that's the sort of thing that a coordinator does. We try and keep the pressure off the FLOs. Can you imagine that the hard work of those FLOs all right, they're, they're all those time ruined by one misinterpreted photograph, and I'd have been crushed. <laughs> you know, I'd have seen if those FLOs had come to me and, and you know seen them sitting in in a in a hotel reception having a drink, and they'd been on since half five that morning, and they were going to be on at half five the following morning. Uh, you know, so so yeah, I I um I, I you know so, so that's part of an FL, FLC. We take away all that peripheral stuff. That makes it makes it difficult for the for the for the FLO to do that for to do the, their job. So yeah, first deployment that we ever had, and it worked. It worked well. It, you know, it's one of the greatest challenges, and you know, we we spoke about it at the start of the show, and I, and I and I echo it every show in terms of ordinary people doing an extraordinary job. But you know, and, and previous guests I've had on were saying, well, no, these are actually extraordinary people doing extraordinary jobs, which is probably even more to the point. But you know, policing is always under the spotlight. You know, it's, it never gets a chance to take a breath. And I think what's really important here, and this is the strongest message for me, is that FLOs, FLCs, disaster victim identification officers are all human beings. They're not robots. And they're dealing with incredible trauma. They're dealing with families that are going through incredible emotional times in their lives that they've never faced before. And at some point, you do need to sit down, take a breath, have a drink and debrief with yeah. your colleagues as to your own emotions that you're experiencing. And they're quite normal human reactions. And I must admit, I I get troubled when I feel that I, I get troubled when I hear stories of opportunistic journalism trying to exploit that as an insecurity of policing not being professional enough. Yeah. When it's quite the opposite in terms of just managing our own mental health and our own emotions and dealing with and, and being able to operate at an optimum level is just being able to take care of yourself because yeah. if we can't take care of ourselves, we're useless to anybody else. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's the other thing an FLC does is is that I'm I was all over my FLOs. I, I you know I, I'm I, you know I, I'm quite a 
big believer in, in mental health, you know, and, and, and making sure that they're okay. Um, because if they're not, they're not performing for the investigation, are they? So that's 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 another thing for, for me. So I'm under, I'm making sure that they are not getting too immersed in this, uh, that, they, they, that they have that ability to, to work away. I'm making sure that they're not making decisions for the family because that's a huge thing. You know, the families have got to be able to make that make those decisions for 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 themselves. I make sure that they're doing doing what is right for for, for the family. They're, they're being involved in the investigation, involved in the process. All right, so I make sure the FLOs aren't getting sort of like Stockholmed. Um, you know, and I also make sure that the family are aware because I wander in once in a while and say. You're going to lose the FLO soon. Remember that because they can't stay with you forever. And the FLO, um, no matter how much they want to stay and carry on supporting them, every time the FLO walks in, walks into that room with a family member, it takes them back to that event. It takes them back to the trauma that they were experiencing. So yeah. there has to be an you exit. To, so you need to be able to break away from that. You have to have that exit mm. strategy. Uh, you have to be able to, to, to stay to the FLO. And you have to manage the FLO as well because, uh, you know, many FLOs are experienced and they know that there's going to be Some of them aren't. Some of them get deeply entrenched into it. And so they ha they those kind of people have to be managed as, uh, as well because they, they're trying their best. And they're learning. It's part of the learning experience. So they've got to know that there is an exit strategy. That's one of the things an FLC does is to make sure that they, they are gradually extracted from, from, from that family and that the family can go on. Um, we don't do um, counselling. Um, we always signpost uh, families to counselling. But generally in that period when we have got, um, have got the family, they don't really need counselling. They need practical support. They need someone to tell them what's going on. They need someone to tell them where their loved one is. They, don't, they, they might need counselling, but generally they don't. Not, but that's cut down the line. All right, they need the practical support type of things. Um, so they need the information because they're awake at four o'clock in the morning, scouring the internet uh, and trying to find out what's going on. Uh, you know, especially with these mass casualty events, they're on all kind of news platforms trying to find out what, what, what what's going on as well. And it's usually at four o'clock in the morning because they can't sleep. All right, so it's incumbent on on an FLO and the FLCs uh, to get as much information to them as possible and and, and manage that sort of. Awareness. So, so yeah, um, FLOs um, extra, extraordinary, extraordinary, and it's weird because I've been an FLO, but these lot are amazing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I, I, I've been an FLO, and, you know, and I thought I've been there, done it, you know. I was in the tsunami. I was in the first one, you know. Um, but um, no, that, that I, I, I would sit back and you know. The, these FLOs, Julia and 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 Lena and Chad and, and Chad were incredible, and there are some incredible FLOs around the the, the the country that do some amazing stuff. Even now, Louise Pye, who was the FLC down in um, down in in Sussex, she's now doing stuff in the NHS. She's taken that skill and has brought it to the into the NHS in, in, in down there, doing incredible. Stuff she ran this show. Remember the crash, uh, the, the air flight uh, crash there. She ran that. Um, she was a family liaison coordinator for that. She does incredible work for the, with the NHS. She's taken that skill and she's taken it to the to the NHS. The NHS need FLOs. Yeah, yeah, they do. They need that. So it's a different sort of role, but they've got those that certain sort of skill set in there. And Lou's brought that brought that sort of awareness, that sort of um, practical support for, for for individuals as opposed to the emotional support, uh, which um, 
which is sadly lacking um, nationally, but and it's usually provided by charities. And I do some work with charities now uh, about that. But um, but that's one thing an FLO doesn't get involved in as well. And, and and that's another thing that as an FLC, I have to make sure that my FLOs are not there counselling the family, uh, because that as well can give untold damage to, to, to the family because they need professionals because the trauma is too, too much to, uh, for them to do on their own. 2017 was your exit date from the Metropolitan Police after an incredible career covering multitude of different departments, but as we've spoken about at length, more so the, the FLO and the FLC position. Was it a sad day when you walked away from policing? <sighs> Do you know, I thought it would be, and I didn't want to go. <laughs> All right, you know, I, you know, but I just, I did realise that I had to go. Um, um, I, you know, I, you... I uh, I had um, I had I, I had a new partner, um, and I was living. Uh, she was she used to live, uh, lives up north in Leeds. Um, so uh, I had a new. The next stage of my life was was ready, and I'm and it, let, let, so January I was I got my head around it that I was I was going to go because as I said to you I loved. In the same way as my father considers himself a Royal Marine PTI, I will consider myself a detective sergeant in the Metropolitan Police until the day I die. Um, so I love being in the police. Um, I was re I was really fortunate. I remember sort of January, February time. I started to wind down because I was going in May and I had quite a little bit of leave. And I, I, you know, I remember getting out of a car once, thinking, "God, that's the last time I'll get in a police car." Um, they sent me over to Belgium because I, uh, I went to the memorial um, of the Belgium. I, I, I ran a team of FLOs in Belgium after the uh, Brussels attack there. Uh, so they sent us over to the, to the memorial there. We met the king, which was really interesting, of Belgium. And it was quite, uh, you know, it was, he was asking about how FLOs operate and that sort of thing, which was really, really interesting. So I then did that. Um, so I was in Belgium and the, um, the attack happened on Westminster Bridge. And I got a telephone call saying, um, you need to be back back in back in the UK. So I came back on the Eurostar as quickly. And I was, was funny enough with, with Julia, from uh, who was with me in Tunis. She, she came out with me to Belgium as well. Uh, so we got back as quickly as possible. And um, I knew I was retiring, so I couldn't run the job as an FLC. So a guy called Nick Troon, who's a legend, uh, he took over the uh, took over the role of running the, as a coordinator. And I did the sort of, peripheral st stuff from that i did the sort of um like arranging visits doing the press that sort of, sort of thing so the last meaningful role i had was um uh getting the families to view their loved ones in the mortuary uh, after you know they've been identified um and before they were handed back uh, back, back to them so I, I managed to get the special escort group and we coordinated it so the escort group took the families through through the streets of London. I drove uh, PC Palmer's uh, family, um, and um, uh, we we drove up. and we, I didn't I didn't go particularly fast, but I drove all the way from Kent all the way up through the Elephant and Castle 
didn't break once. I didn't go below thirty. Didn't go above thirty. Didn't go below thirty. They they took me all the way up there, and we got there. They got us into the to, into the mortuary. The mortuary had done amazing work in there. The families were all in a in a lovely room. The bodies the bodies were in a in a because they were still uh, part of you know the evidential chain. Excuse me for talking that way. The body is part of the evidential chain. The families were behind the gas, but they were able to see their, their their loved ones. It's another thing, totally different to the experience I, I had in Tunis. Much more compassionately, and I'm really proud. My last meaningful day was that, was that I, I you know, and I, I, I walked away from from that, and I did a few other things, obviously, in rowing that operation. But when I walked away at six o'clock of an evening, I was I was still answering emails at six o'clock on my last day in New Scotland Yard, and then I thought, Mars, what are you doing? <laughs> What are you doing? Just go, just go. And so I, I just went home that, that, that night and uh, walked off. Um, and um, I woke up the next day and I, I had nothing. I had a golf lesson planned. I took up golf that day because someone told me I should fill up my time. Uh, and um, was I sad? I've been offered the opportunity three times to go back. And part of me is thinking, oh, yeah, I could do that. But then part of me is thinking, do you know what? I've done my time. There are incredibly capable people there. And so, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I loved it. I loved it. But, you know, that, that was another chapter, a chapter a million years ago. It was, it was brilliant. And, and I can look back and I've made so good friends and I've seen some incredible people. And do some stuff and and we're always judged by our our worst ingredients and i see it on the press and i see it in the newspapers and they moan about this and they moan about that and yes there are bad cops and we need to get rid of them we need to highlight them we need to get rid of them we need to shove them we need to put them in prison for a long time if they've done the terrible things that, that have come out recently all right but they are not reflective of the police service that i know and some people might say i've got my head in the sand well i haven't because I, I went, in, I was in that environment every day for for nine thousand six hundred eleven days, and on every one of those days, I saw someone doing something that made a difference. Uh, so yeah, we, we don't get the press we deserve, but we get the press we get. So that's that we just have to deal with it. That's you know part of being a cop, isn't it? So yeah, very proud of that, um, and that's why. And I thought. You know, I take my FLOs things and try and do a little bit outside, uh, um, outside the, the the service as well, which I've I've really really enjoyed doing. So yeah, yeah, sad, but yeah, I'm that I'm not glad I went, but I, it was time for me to go. It's you know that the last hour and forty minutes has flown by because it's you know such incredible experiences yeah. that you're able to sh- on, no 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 <laughs> incredible experiences that you're able to share and and if anything. You know, as police officers, we interact with hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years that we have service in. And, you know, those of us in operational role, you know, tend to deal with people that generally don't want to see us. Well, most people don't really want to see us because generally when they see us, it's not for always a good reason. But I think one of the defining one of the defining factors of, of men and women in positions that you've held that still do the job today and will do it every day for the rest of policing is in, 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 in its existence is changing the lives of people in terms of delivering news which is life-changing to them but delivering it in such a way that helps them be able to start the recovery process even after receiving that news which is such a huge impactful moment for not only you but as you quite rightly pointed out for them equally because it's something they'll remember 
for the rest of their life. And I think it's such an incredible skill. So, I, I, you know, on behalf of my team here at the podcast, Protect and Serve, you know, having the honor to hear your experiences and to hear the work you've done. Thank you for your incredible service. It's quite remarkable. And equally goes to the men and women that you worked alongside and that you oversaw. Uh, that, that extends to them equally because we can't, we can't forget that policing is a team sport and that everybody mucks in together to get through some really, really difficult periods. And uh, yeah, no, just quite incredible. So thank you ever so much for coming on the show and we wish you... Thank obviously you. the best of luck with your you. endeavors outside of policing and maybe you might get the temptation to go back in the future <laughs> one more time yeah no <laughs> too old now it won't pass physical <laughs> <laughs> listen miles it's been absolutely fantastic thank you ever so much for coming on thank you for your thank public you. service and we wish you all the best for the future okay. thank you you've been very kind thank you that's okay thank you protect and serve is a mash pumpkin production hosted by oliver lawrence Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.